if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We continue our way through the books, the letters written to the church in Thessalonica, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We find ourselves this morning in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. Here's what it says. This... And I believe it's referring to verse 4 where it talks about their steadfastness and their faith in their persecutions and afflictions. So this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed, to this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it interesting uh, and fascinating to hear the different viewpoints on how this world will come to an end. And, and just, uh, you know, just the survey of different news articles and things like that will will give you an insight into what, what, peop- what people think is ultimately going to be the end of this world. Some think it's, even more recently I read an article, some think it's molecular nanotechnology and will be the inevitable end of this world. Some think it's global warming will be the inevitable end of this world. Some think it's overpopulation will be what finally wipes this world out. Some think it's bioweapon warfare that'll be what wipes this world out. There are many other viewpoints on that as well. And it's true, the end of all things is at hand. That's what the Apostle Peter talks about. The end of all things is at hand. uh, Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, says, we, in the last days, here's what's going to happen. But what will end this world will not be molecular nanotechnology, global warming, overpopulation, or bioweapons. What will end this world as we know it, will be the King Jesus. Now, as we come to our passage this morning, we need to understand that there's a lot of confusion going on about the end times in the Thessalonian church. Remember, this is a young church, new converts. But Paul had been teaching them some things, and again, he's saying, I've already written this to you, you, you you're already aware, I've already said this, but he's having to continue to correct what's going on, and, and they were just completely, completely clueless, uh, uh, to, and, 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 and had trouble understanding what was going on with the end times, and so a lot of confusion going on, and it reminded me uh, of, on my, on my laptop, I have, when I took a, a Hebrew class in seminary, I had to install a Hebrew keyboard, keyboard. 
And so what happens, there's a button on my laptop that if I push it, it, it changes to the Hebrew language, and then everything, I, everything I'm typing turns into the Hebrew language. And sometimes when I'm typing, or if I go to type, I'll accidentally hit that button, and when I start typing in English, it'll ac- accidentally be Hebrew. And you're like, well, what's the big deal? Didn't you take Hebrew? Well, it doesn't mean I can read it. And, and so you just, it's just mass confusion on, on what's going on on my laptop, and sometimes it's that little shock of like, well, what's going on here? And that's, that's kind of the confusion I think a lot of the Thessalonians and a lot of Christians have when it comes to the end times. You know, they can read their Bible, and it's, it's pretty understandable, and they can read it kind of in the common language, if you, if you will. But then it comes to the end times. There's just a bunch of gibberish, hard to understand, confusing what's going on. And that's natural, because Jesus and the Bible doesn't, doesn't really lay out detail by detail what's going to happen. It gives us the big events, the rapture, the second coming, the tribulation, but it doesn't, it doesn't lay out in perfect order what's going to happen and when. And I just want to look at, as we talk about this very thing, I want to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Because the apostles asked Jesus this very question, like, so Lord, when they had come together, Lord, are, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time the Israelites are finally, we're not going to be oppressed, it's, it's our kingdom, we, you know, it's on the earth. And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea uh, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now I just want to look at this just for a minute. Because the, the now again, look at the context of what we're talking about. The Thessalonian church... I hope it's okay, I hope it's not a stretch to put it this way, but the Thessalonian church at least seemed to be almost entirely clueless about what the end times entailed. And as a matter of fact, in these letters, Paul has to correct them over and over and over again. Yet, yet, do you remember how the Apostle Paul described this Thessalonian church? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he called them the model church for all other churches to model after. Here, uh, just last week, we looked at Paul. Paul, this is the church that Paul boasted about when he went throughout the regions. When he went to other churches, he boasted about the Thessalonian church. Now, here's the point I want to make when it comes to the end times. And why is it that Paul calls this church a model church, and he boasts about this church when he goes to other churches? It's because they were an Acts 1-8 church, not an Acts 1-7 church. This church was the church that received the gospel in full conviction and with the Holy Spirit. It says that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And they were content using that power and that power of the Holy Spirit that was flowing through them to preach the gospel to those around them. They weren't trying to figure out Acts chapter 1 verse 7. I mean, as, as in, they, they, weren't, they weren't letting that be their, their only mission to try to figure out the end times. Of course, Paul is writing to them because they were confused and they did need to figure it out. So as we go through these passages, especially as we go through 2 Thessalonians, because next week as we get into chapter 2, we're going to talk more about the end times and some more, some more details about what it's going to include and some, some of the signs and some of the events. So as we go through these passages, I just, just yes, let them give you a robust biblical theology about the end times. I think that's important. But we can't let it stop there. We must be in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, church. 
And as we come to this passage, this passage affirms that Jesus will return. Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, as we get into our message and our points this morning, they're in your bulletin, but when Jesus returns, there will be, number one, retribution for those who do not believe the gospel. There will be retribution for those who do not believe the gospel. Now, there are several parts to this, and you you can tell it kind of takes the bulk of our passage, and it'll take uh, a little bit more of our time this morning as we try to try to balance out our time and what we're what we're saying. But God is allowing suffering. This church was facing persecution. I mean, it's obvious. Remember Acts chapter sixteen. Paul was was run out of town uh, after preaching the gospel there, and and it's apparent that the persecution didn't didn't stop when Paul was out of town, but instead the persecution now turned to the Thessalonian Christians. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but nonetheless, Paul is describing it here as persecution, hatred. And this church had no interest in being anything but faithful to the God who saved them. And this is a work of God in their lives. We talked about that last week. It was, it was, uh, and we've talked about it even the last couple weeks about God's grace and God empowering his children to walk faithfully in the world. I mentioned as I was beginning to read this that the verse 5, the this, I believe, refers to their steadfastness and faith in verse 4. So this, that sort of steadfastness, that sort of faith in trials was evidence that God's decision to allow them to suffer was the right decision. And why is that? Well, this verse tells us. Because this sort of steadfastness in trial produced and revealed in them that they would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, it might be kind of hard to untangle and figure out exactly what this is saying. But, but I think we need to understand, one, is, is, is sometimes the Bible's view of suffering sounds so foreign to us. Because while the Bible never lightens suffering, it never disregards its abnormality, it never disregards the evil and often the sin that's always, that tends to be uh, in and around this suffering. Yet the Bible presents so much more to suffering than we often consider Bible tells us that God is using suffering to sanctify his children, and we see here that God is working supernaturally in his children to use suffering as a tool to build that sort of steadfastness in faith. And according to verse 5, when we get that steadfastness and that faith shown in our suffering, that produces this sort of worthy church, worthy person, worthy of the kingdom of God. So, put another way, God's suffering, the suffering that God allows, God's decision to allow persecution and suffering is right. That's what it says, the the righteous judgment of God. So God's decision to allow this persecution is right because through that suffering, he was preparing a church worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't to say that their suffering was the foundation of their salvation, but God is using that suffering. And he's using that persecution And he's saying this is all evidence that these are a church. This is a church worthy of the kingdom of God. Reminds us of Acts chapter 14, 22. You remember that phrase there in Acts uh, Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that's what's going on with this church. They're going through many tribulations, and, and as they remain steadfast and immovable in their faith as they go through these tribulations, God is saying they are worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, the Thessalonians, again, they were confused about the return of the Lord. They thought there was nothing more. They kind of thought this was it. It's kind of the idea of this passage. 
And this is why Paul is saying that those who are persecuting them aren't just going to get off the hook because they kind of thought, well, this is it. This is what the Christian life is. There's nothing at the end of, there, not that there's nothing at the end of this, but there's no remedy. There's just always going to be persecution for the church. And Paul is saying to them, you're suffering, but God isn't done yet. Jesus won't leave the world like this. No one who afflicts the sons and daughters of God will get off the hook. And that kind of leads us into verse 6. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, Paul is writing this again to give comfort to these people. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. And they weren't sure what, what the plan of Jesus was here. And here, Paul is writing to give them comfort and encouragement to these young Christians. God is going to do something to remedy the persecution. He will repay with affliction those who afflict them. As commentator Gene Green puts it, God is all about just outcomes. It's something we long for. Nobody wants to live in a society where there's no justice. Nobody wants to live in a society where something, somebody can do something evil to you and there's no repercussions. So this is embedded in, in humanity at the very core. And so what God is saying here is that everyone that is persecuting them, all the wrongs that are being committed against them, everything done in transgression against them will be paid back. So if you go down to verse, uh, verse 6, he's going to repay, that's the word, repay, he's going to pay him back. There's going to be retribution. So when Jesus returns, and he will, God will justly and rightly repay those who, but notice here in verse 8 and 9, it's not just those who are persecuting the church. In verse 8 it says, and he comes in flaming fire, Jesus does inflicting vengeance on who? Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. So here, here's the picture here. God is going to be just and those who afflict the church will, be, will receive the just payment. But it's not just those who persecute the church. And so if you're in here this morning and you don't, you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior and you're thinking, well, I don't persecute the church, so God's not going to bring any judgment on me. This passage tells us otherwise. That it's not just those who persecute the church, although that's certainly included, but it's all those who do not, obey, do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It makes it clear that God's just and righteous payback comes on all who do not obey the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, to obey the gospel means to believe the gospel. Acts chapter 6 and Romans chapter uh, 1 talk about obedience to the faith or obedience of the faith. Uh, so to believe the gospel is to obey the gospel because the gospel, as Paul says, God is commanding everyone everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. So if you're in here this morning, for everybody in here this morning, myself included, this is the criteria on which God will judge every single person. Did you believe the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? And if the answer is no, which for some of you very well may be the case, if you don't believe the gospel, but you're trusting in your own works or trusting in some religious things you do or trusting that, that God is going to turn a blind eye to your sin, if you do not believe the gospel, God will give you all that that disobedience deserves. And this passage tells us in verse 9 that it's, it's suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. 
this judgment is described as Jesus coming in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on the guilty. Fire is often used in scripture to talk about God's holiness, to talk about his indignation of sin. And here Jesus is coming in the holiness of God, because he is God, in the holiness of God, in the indignation of God's just and right wrath for those who disobey the gospel. And he's sending in people into eternal destruction. This is the opposite of eternal life. This is the opposite of eternal life. This same punishment is is referred to elsewhere in scripture as unquenchable fire in Matthew chapter 3, as a fiery furnace in Matthew chapter 13, as utter darkness in Jude chapter 1 verse 13, and a lake of fire in Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. Here's what this means. That the God you will face and the God I will face on the last day is not the sin-ignoring God that we so often create in our minds. The God you will face before you are taken to your eternal destiny is the same God who cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, the same God who flooded the world with water to destroy all of humanity save one family. It's the same God who rained sulfur down on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same God who struck down Uzzah for touching the holy ark. It's the same God who struck down Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the church. There will be no grading on a curve when you stand before God. There's no comparing to Hitler when you stand before God. You will stand before God and you will be judged on one question and one question only. Did you believe the gospel? And you, by yourself, standing before God, that is on the basis on which you will be judged. Yet it's not just the same God who flooded the world, cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, brought fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's also the same God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus Christ, the gospel is good news that Jesus Christ is our salvation. And why is he our salvation? Why, is, why isn't church salvation? Why isn't baptism salvation? Why isn't doing good work salvation? Why isn't giving money to to orphanages salvation? It's because on the cross, Jesus was cast out. On the cross, Jesus was flooded with the wrath of God for sins. It's because on the cross, Jesus, upon him, rained the fire and sulfur of God's wrath. Jesus was struck down for touching the holy ark. Jesus was punished for our sins. And if you believe the gospel, the promise is that Jesus has stood in your place. He's taken your place. And when you stand before God, it won't just be you. Jesus will be next to you as your advocate. And so that if you believe the gospel, when you stand before God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sinner, Sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because make no doubt about it, when Jesus returns, he will bring retribution for those who do not believe the gospel. But also with this, he will bring relief for those who do. When Jesus returns, there will be retribution for those who do not believe the gospel, 
relief for those who do. This is just, this is, this is what we find in verse 7. And again, this is why Paul is writing. Relief is coming. The appearing of Jesus, when Jesus appears, will bring relief to those who have obeyed the gospel. Now, formally, when Paul referred to the return of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians, uh, he uses a Greek word, it's parousia, you don't have to remember the word, or, but it, it talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus. But here, in verse 7, where it says, uh, uh, to grant us relief, who are afflicted, it says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed, the Greek word is apocalypto. You might hear the word apocalypse in there. Uh, the word literally means to be unveiled or to, to remove the veil, to make known what is hidden. And right now, Jesus is hidden, but he's not absent. He disappeared into the sky at the ascension after his resurrection, but he left the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and to give us power to walk faithfully for Christ in this life. And Paul here is referring to a specific time, right? So he said, there's a win here. So he's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as and us as well, because Paul was suffering affliction. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This is a specific time. This is why the angels, after the passage we read, it's, it's not on the screen, but after the passage we read, uh, you know, the, the, the disciples are like staring up into the sky after Jesus ascends, after he just got done saying, you're not going to know what's going to happen at the end times, but you're going to receive power. And they're sitting there staring up into the sky, and, and the angel comes and says, why, are you, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you to heaven will come in the same way. And so there, there's the really, relief is coming. Jesus is coming back. That was the relief. That's the relief we wait for. And at the very end of the book, Revelation chapter 20, the end of time, the beginning of eternity, if I can put it that way, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be the, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. When Jesus returns, this is all going to be realized for those who follow Jesus. Jesus is bringing relief to those who believe the gospel. And Jesus is bringing relief to those who believe the gospel and are being persecuted for their faith. Now Paul, uh, as he says here, he says he's going to bring relief to you and to us as well because Paul knew what was going on uh, there. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, he talks about being in Macedonia, the, the region uh, where Thessalonica, Thessalonica is located. And he says, for even when we came into Macedonia, notice what he says here, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting with ours. There's a bunch of fights on the outside of us. And even Paul says, I was fearful, fighting fear. But notice, he says, we had no rest. It's like he's telling the church, there's no rest there. There's no rest in Macedonia. Yet to the Thessalonians he writes, relief is coming. Rest is coming. This is God's plan. Rest and relief. Way back at the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that there would be a son born to the offspring of the woman that would crush this serpent who we know as Satan and it would, he would crush sin and death. 
Now, follow the storyline here because you remember, you remember uh, generations come and go. And Lamech, the father of Noah, do you remember what it says in Genesis chapter 5 about why he named Noah, Noah? Genesis chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Why? Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us what? Relief from our work. Except Noah didn't do that. We live a long time after Noah, and we are still in the work and the painful toil of our hands. So Noah wasn't the one to bring rest. Later on, God rescues his people from slavery, and he promises, promises them a land. He says, I'm going to bring you this land, it's gonna, and he calls it a land of rest. But, but rest was never just about being in a land or in some geographical boundary. God rescued his people from slavery because he wanted to give them rest. And he gave them these Sabbath laws that, that even commanded them to rest. Every seven days, even every seven years. And yet, they didn't find perfect rest in the promised land. Because they still had sin and they still had enemies. They still had pain, they still had enemies, they still had affliction. There was no relief, there was no rest. And then what does Jesus say when he arrives on the scene in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary, labor, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we who believe enter that rest. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. And the ultimate realization of rest and relief is coming when Jesus returns. Now it's okay to pray, and if you are being persecuted or you're feeling the pressure of being a Christian, it is okay to pray for relief. Paul did that in Philippians, even 2 Timothy. But we must realize that full and eternal relief is coming as we keep looking ahead. Christian relief is coming. Eternal relief is coming. I want to encourage you not to fight. Not to fight in this earth for eternal relief on this temporary earth. Let me say that again. Don't spend your days fighting for eternal relief on this temporary earth. Look ahead to the relief that's coming. After my knee surgery not long ago, I uh, took a couple days worth of, of pretty, pretty heavy, pretty solid pain pills. And they were good. They were really good. But they were far from perfect. The ultimate and true pain reliever will be here soon. And it's not a pill you swallow, it's a person you believe. Warren Wiersbe gives an illustration uh, in his commentary of two farmers. One was a Christian, one, one was an atheist. And the atheist began to taunt this Christian farmer because apparently the Lord had not blessed them too much that year. And he, he calls out to the, the Christian farmer, he says, I thought you said it paid to believe in God and to be a Christian, said the atheist. To which the farmer replied, it does pay. But God doesn't always pay his people in September. We have eternal rest and relief on the way. And God doesn't always provide that rest and relief in September. But we don't have to fear the judgment and the fire and the wrath because God has already judged our sins at Calvary. So when Jesus returns, there will be, number one, there will be retribution for those who do not believe the gospel. Number two, relief for those who do. Number three, 
when Jesus returns, there will be glory given to Jesus for his salvation. When Jesus returns, there will be glory given to Jesus for his salvation. We won't spend much time here in verse 10. But it says, when he comes, the, 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 those who disobey the gospel, they're going to suffer punishment of eternal destruction. And just to note here, th- this is not annihilation. This is not purgatory. This is full, eternal, conscious existence in a place called hell for all eternity. And then verse 10, it says, when this happens, he's going to come, and on that day, he's going to be glorified in his saints. And he's going to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was also believed. So Jesus will be glorified for all to see when his people receive the full ramifications of salvation, eternally secured forever. Saints are those who believe the gospel. They are the ones set apart for Christ, belonging to him through the redemption he secured. And the saints are going to marvel. The saints are. Not the rest of the world, it doesn't say here. But the saints, we're going to marvel. We're going to marvel at what it means that when, when we finally get to experience the fully realized blessings of glorification, we're going to marvel at the Lord Jesus. And note, I want you to notice in verse 10, before we move on, I want you to notice, I want you to notice who this is for and why it's for them. Because verse 10 says he's going to come on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. Again, this, this is all who have believed the gospel. All who believe the gospel. The ones who will receive eternal life, the ones who will receive eternal relief from affliction and suffering and persecution. The ones in whom Christ will be glorified aren't the ones who earned it or deserved it or worked their way to it or paid for it. It was the ones who believed the gospel. Jesus brings them this rest through the vehicle of belief. But notice here, it wasn't just their belief, but Paul even adds this. He says, because our testimony to you is believed. So Paul had to come and tell them about this. We'll get to touch more on that here in a little bit. But another emphasis, that your response to the gospel, your response to the gospel determines your eternal destiny, nothing else. Not church membership, not baptism, not communion, nothing religious. Your response to the gospel determines your eternal destiny, nothing else. Here's the fourth thing as we look at the final two verses. When Jesus returns, there will be retribution for those who do not believe the gospel. Relief for those who do. Glory given to Jesus for his salvation. But until then... What will the gospel produce within you? Paul closes with this prayer. To this end, we always pray for you. All right, so after mentioning all this stuff, all right, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the, 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 the retribution, the relief, the glory, he comes to this and says, he's just, he's just spurred on to pray for them after writing all this, and he says, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for, every good, uh, for good work and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All of what the Apostle Paul just walked through motivated Paul to pray. He turns his teaching into a prayer, and Paul often prayed for his converts, He was invested in it. 
And so Paul is saying here, because of everything I just said, here's what I ask God to do in your life and why. Which is why we go, until then, what's, what's, what's this message going to do for you? What's the message of the gospel? What's the message of the Lord Jesus returning going to do for you? What might the Holy Spirit use this passage to work in you? Well, Paul prays something, that he wants it to work in every believer. When he says, because of everything I just said, here's what I ask God to do in your life. And we get the request, the first request here. May God make you worthy of his calling. Now, this is a prayer a little bit different from the one, remember, we started this whole thing with saying, well, I thought, you know, the steadfastness and faith that they exhibited in suffering was God's way of preparing the people that were worthy. So now why is Paul saying that they need to take the initiative here? Because that's how Christian life works. And here, Paul is praying that they would prove their worth in their day-to-day practice. Yes, God was working behind the scenes as he, as he enabled them to walk through suffering with steadfastness and hope. But here he's saying, you need to take the initiative. And in your day-to-day practice, you need to show that you are worthy. You need to walk worthy of the Lord. God calls sinners to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. And when he calls someone to himself and, and they believe the gospel... They are worthy to be God's children, yes, but now they need to show that worthiness in practice. I mean, we've seen this exhortation before in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, what? To walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's, that's what's being talked about here. He's saying you need to live a life that is consistent, a life that is worthy with being called Christian. So you should live a life, and your life should say, I am worthy to be called a Christian. Again, not because you earn salvation on your own, or not because good works save you, but because you've believed the gospel. A life of holiness, according to God's will, is what the outflow of that faith. So he prays that they would be worthy of their calling. And then he prays this, that you make full, uh, he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So Paul here is just expecting that if you're a Christian, if you've been regenerated, if you've been converted, you've been born again, that you're going to have some sort of desire within you to do good things. And if that's completely absent, you have no desire to please the Lord Jesus, then that's, that's a big deal. That's a big concern. Because when God saves us, he gives us his Holy Spirit that we might have these new desires. And, and Paul is expecting that these regenerate individuals will have some resolution to do good works. They'd have some sort of noble desires in their heart to do what pleases the Lord. And so Paul is praying that. He wants God to fulfill them, God to fulfill them. Okay, you don't see this, this played out, and that's kind of where the work of faith, it's kind of the, if the resolve for every good is what happens in our hearts and in our desire, the work of faith is where those good desires, those good resolves play itself out in life. So Paul is saying he wants both. So God, take, take those good desires. Maybe it's, maybe it's a desire to share the gospel with somebody. Maybe it's a desire to show hospitality. Maybe it's a, a desire to, to go and ask forgiveness from someone or to forgive someone. And so there should be those desires, and Paul is just saying, God, those resolves that they have for good, fulfill it in their work. Because Paul knows that whenever we resolve something for good, our flesh is quick to find something to take its place. Or our schedules are so busy that it's, it's hard to implement 
those good desires that God gives us. So Paul is praying that God would enable and empower them to fulfill their resolve for doing good and working out in life, in faith. This inner desire moves to an outward, outward activity. And it's God's power and his divine work that's the ultimate cause out of all of this. And notice the point of all this in verse 12. The point of all this, Paul says, is that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. It's the ultimate purpose of everything that Paul is praying here. I just want to give you three points of application as we, as we bring all this to a close. And Lord willing, I hope you find some practical application in your own life, on your own, just between you and the Lord and the Holy Spirit. But number one, Jesus is coming, and he's coming in flaming fire to inflict, inflict vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel. So my appeal to you would be to believe the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel, if you're unsure, if you know sitting there that you're trusting in some standing you have with the church or some standing that your family has had of being Christians or you're brought up in a Christian family or been brought up in the church or whatever it might be, and you know in your heart you're not trusting the gospel for your salvation, my appeal to you would be that you believe the gospel and you be saved from the very wrath and judgment that the Lord Jesus himself will bring. My appeal to you, to those who do know Jesus as your Savior, would be to share the gospel. Share the gospel. You don't have to be weird about it. You don't have to, you don't have to run up to the next unsafe person you see, grab them by the ankles and say, fire and judgment is coming. You're gonna, that, that's, that's probably not going to give you an open door into people's lives to share the gospel. But love people, serve people, have your neighbors over. Earn trust with people. And then tell them, as God provides out opportunity, and pray for God to provide opportunities, to share the gospel. Second would be to hope in God. Some of you this morning may very well be suffering for the Lord Jesus. You're rejected, you're made fun of, maybe you're getting the cold shoulder by a family member, maybe you're being wrongfully characterized at work, or false accusations are being made against you. Hope in God, because relief is coming. Continue to fight the good fight of the faith. Don't rejoice over the retribution coming on those who reject, but instead look forward that when Jesus does come, he'll bring relief with him. Be careful not to repay evil for evil, like Romans 12 says, because even there, do not repay evil for evil, for vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And the final thing is to give glory to Jesus in this life. Resolve to do good and then let that flow out of your heart into your life. Another way to put this is to live under the authority of Jesus Christ. If nothing else, the return of Jesus will establish once and for all and for all eternity for every single soul that Jesus is the authority. He is over this world and all who dwell therein belong to him. And so if you're a Christian, You've been given the Holy Spirit through whom God produces that godly resolve and, and, the, and the ability to do good works. Don't resort to spiritual laziness. This is not a time for spiritual laziness. It's not a time for conspiracy theories about the end time. It's not a time to fear the culture or to fear society. Yes, we don't want to be touched by society, but we are called to go and touch it. Let us be faithful as God's followers because we know that when Jesus returns, there will be retribution for those who do not obey the gospel. There will be relief for those who do. 
There will be great glory given to Jesus when we finally marvel at the full realization of all that he has done for us. And until then, may the gospel produce in us a faithful Christian life, eager to do good works. Let's pray. Lord, you're coming back. And uh, the weight of the things we talked about today, even weighing my heart down as I prepared this message, it's hard to think about. You think about eternity. We just sit there and think about eternity and how long eternity is. Lord, our lives are so petty. My life is so often so petty. It's so often given to things that don't matter, doing things that don't matter, replacing resolves for good works and works of faith for something else on the calendar. So, Lord, you've, you've called us to be in and of the world, untouched by it, but going out and salting and touching our culture, our society, our neighbors, our family, our friends. Lord, may we do that. And, Lord, may we all be ready for the time you return. In Jesus' name, amen.